Open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. And while you're getting there, it's another one of those one-verse sermons. But there's so much here. But I want to begin by just asking a question. Because this is a theme through this passage in Hebrews. How do we approach death? And at the point of death, what is our concern for the next generation? Because death is the great equalizer. Everyone faces it. And how we approach death says a lot about us. Because in the face of death, you begin to think about what is ultimately important. And this is why so many people contemplate uh, death in, in, in hospitals. Or excuse me, they, they contemplate what happens after death. In, uh, when they face death in themselves or in others. They begin, to, they begin to contemplate God in their souls and eternity. Even though maybe they've lived their entire lives shaking their fists at God. What is it about death? This sobering time when you realize, oh, wait a second, I'm mortal, I'm sinful. What happens next? I was reading this uh, atheist blog this week. I don't really recommend it unless you want a good laugh or, 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 you, wanna, or uh, you just want some information. But it was, it, I was really surprised at the honesty of one of their uh, postings. Uh, one of the postings was, the title, was titled, The Deathbed is the Ultimate Test. And it was a really honest conversation, I mean, mostly critical of, of, of Christians, but still somewhat honest for atheists, because they were asking themselves, is an atheist conviction uh, consistent up to the day, uh, up to the moment of, uh, of death? They wanted to band together and say that no atheist has ever come to Christ on, on, his, on his deathbed, that, that uh, it was just a, a, a product of the moment. But it was interesting to, to see them go back and forth because they're asking an honest question. Does what we believe and stake our entire lives on hold up to the moment where everything will be taken away? Because I can't imagine for them how scary and hopeless that must be. To place your whole life in nothing, to put faith in nothing, and then to realize my life has amounted to nothing and I have nothing to look forward to. Not so with those who live by faith. Because for us, change is, or excuse me, death is just a change of venue. When Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. It is a very real place for a very real soul. And one day our bodies will be united with our souls. We're not going to get into the, the theological depths of that. But in every other religion, the way you live is determining, will determine what happens after you die. Your entire life is determined on how you live. Your entire afterlife, if there is such a thing, is dependent on what you've done. But for the believer, our eternity is dependent on what Christ has done. Our dependency for our eternity is not based on our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. And there's a stark contrast. So when a believer approaches death, the picture is very different than when a non-believer does. And universally, people agree that murder, stealing, lying, cheating are somewhat wrong. They may explain them away in different contexts. But we know that Jesus took it a step further. That if you think about cheating, you think about lying, you think about hurting someone, if you have hatred towards someone in your heart, you wish them dead, then you've already committed that crime. And each one of us have committed those crimes thousands of times over those Sins we carry with us. 
And sadly, if you don't know the God of all righteousness, you're just hoping that your good works will outweigh your bad works. And that just hopefully you are good enough to earn whatever afterlife there may be. But thankfully, we have a God whose righteousness is good enough for all of our bad deeds to be accounted to us, the righteousness of Christ. We looked at this on Wednesday. We spent a lot of time in the last half of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul gives us the picture of human nature, that it is completely corrupted. And we looked at his three examples God giving over people to their vile passions, to their desires for the flesh. God giving over people to their immoral actions. God giving over people to their debased minds. The entire person, head, heart, hands, your thoughts, your affections, your actions are completely corrupted by sin. And it's a scary place to be at the end of your life. When you were completely burdened and completely captured by sin. If you have faith in a holy and righteous God, you approach death a little bit differently. And so with that in mind, let's see what the writer of Hebrews says about death. Uh, I want to read this entire passage in context because there is a theme here. We're actually going to uh, pick up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Because verse 13 sets up uh, what Deshaun talked about last week, what we'll be talking about next week. And there is a theme here, and see if you can see this theme developing in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to respond, to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city, prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Let's pray. Our gracious and holy God, our Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, our brother, our mediator, our intercessor, our salvation. Holy Spirit, our guide, our advocate. Before the foundation of the earth, you knew us. You knew our sins. You knew that we were not deserving of your mercy, but deserving of your wrath. You did not leave us without an option. You made a way when there was no way, humanly speaking, for those who have nothing to offer on our own. Lord, thank you that we can approach death boldly, 
calmly, peaceably, like Jacob did. Thank you that death is not the end of the story for the believer. That our promises are real now. We will see them in fullness when you come again. And Lord, I just pray that this morning this message would be clear, that it would be an encouragement, that as we look at the way that you provide for your people, that we see that provision in our lives, that we recognize the promises that were true to the patriarchs are true, are true to us. We recognize that in Christ we have all of these spiritual blessings. And that we are never without hope. We are never without you. Because you have promised to be with us until the end of the age. Just pray that you would use me this morning, that your spirit would speak, that your scriptures would come alive, and that you would transform our hearts and our minds to see things as you see them with an eternal perspective. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this section on death, there's a few things I want to I bring to your attention. There's a theme here. You see that death is never talked about fine, uh, it, with any kind of finality here. Death is no barrier to the promises of God. The people of God look forward to their inheritance in him, look forward to their future home. There is a hope in the promises of God. And our God is with his people at death and after death. These all died in faith. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the persevering faith that lives a life of faith up to the moment of death dying in faith. And Jacob knew that he could trust his descendants to the Lord. Just as as Abraham did, just as Isaac did, just as Joseph would. Because he knew the character of God. Also, it's interesting here that nothing is said about the life of Isaac. Nothing is said about the life of Jacob or the life of Joseph. The only mention here in Hebrews 11, what is most important for us to get, is how they ended It's very interesting that of all the things that Isaac went through, all the things that Jacob went through, all the things that Joseph went through, Joseph was extremely faithful through his entire life. We're going to get into that more next week. But his only mention is at the end of his days. What does he see is most important? And what I've been telling you guys all along, this all goes back to Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. It is this foresight that looks forward to the promises of God. And is not, consu- is not worried about what happened before or what's happening now, but only what God has promised going forward. So if we look at our text this morning, verse 21, we're going to look at one verse. And I'm going to try to keep it under an hour. Um, By faith, Jacob. Is Jacob known for his faith? Deshaun and I were talking about this last week when he's, when he's looking at Jacob going after the, the, the blessings. The struggle is, how do you see faith in the life of Jacob? He's a liar. He's a swindler. His name means he cheats. The first words in scripture attributed to Jacob is he cheats. But the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Jacob. So so should he be known for his faith? I'm going to make the argument according to Genesis. We're going to get there in a minute. That when it counts, when it came down to it, Jacob was a strong man of faith. But let's just catch up to where we were before. So where we, where we left off last week is that he blessed Jacob and kind of blessed Esau, even though you never want the blessing that Esau got. And then Jacob goes on uh, to go back to his father's homeland and to seek a wife. 
and he sees this beautiful woman, and her father's like, great, work for me, you can get this one, but I've got the other sister that I hid in the back room that no one wants to marry. You can have her first and then stay another seven years for Rachel. And so he stays and works for Laban, his father-in-law, and they bear him 12 sons. Well, not just them. They've also got a couple mistresses that they throw in the mix because they're, they're impatient and they, they, they want a son to claim them. There's this little rivalry going on between Leah and, and Rachel. And so those 12 boys are the perfect picture of godly men, right? Anyone who's read Genesis know that that's not the case. These 12 little angels, 10 of them conspire to kill their little brother and eventually end up sending him off into slavery. If you're an older brother, this has gone through your mind at least once. Then the oldest son sleeps with his father's mistress. Then uh, two of the sons slaughter an entire nation of men after the sisters raped. Uh, another son sleeps with a harlot who turns out to be his daughter-in-law. This is, this is TMZ, right? This is, this is nightly news or some new ABC drama because it sounds like something they would write. No, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. These are God's chosen people, these stalwarts of the faith. But none of them are mentioned except Joseph. And Hebrews 11, all of this dysfunction that exists in Jacob's family and his questionable character, he lies, he cheats, but he still valued God's covenantal promises. He remembered the promise to his grandfather. He remembered the promise to his father and he trusted in the Lord's blessings and he knew that they were of utmost importance. You know, one of the famous accounts about Jacob's when he wrestled with God. We're not going to get into what that means. But this is just such a weird entry. But it's not that he wrestled with God. It's why he wrestled with God. And I'll be honest, for the longest time, this confused me. Why is this even here? Do you remember why he wrestled with God? He wrestled for a blessing. I will not let go until you bless me. Now, we will not condone Jacob's actions. We will not condone lying to your father. We will not condone deceiving your brother. We will not condone wrestling with God if you ever get the opportunity. But for Jacob, his motivation was, I want the blessings of God so bad, I will do anything to get them. I will lie, cheat, and steal to get them. Not telling you to lie, cheat, and steal, but do you desire the blessings of God so much that you will stop at nothing to get them? Misguided as he may have been many times, this was his heart. And this heart is shown for us in uh, Genesis 48. We're going to get there in just a moment. Just like Jacob's life was not commendable, neither was yours, neither was mine. But Jacob, and the way he went, went about it, we would not encourage. He did it because he knew the undescribable inheritance that he had in God. And he knew he wanted that. And if Esau doesn't want it, I'll take it. And if my dad can't see, I'm going to get my blessing, like Bree's co-worker. But the blessing was not some temporal present that, that he, he wanted to take with him. It was the internal, eternal inheritance that came from the Father. And I love what Arthur Pink says about this, about the end of Jacob's life. He says, a stormy passage indeed was his. 
but the waters were smooth as he entered the port. Cloudy and dark were many of the hours of his life, but the sunset bathed it with radiant splendor at its close. Man, we want that to be said about us. Because many times it feels like cloudy and dark were many of the hours of my life. But at the sunset, it was bathed in radiant splendor at the close. Hebrews eleven twenty one says, By faith, Jacob, when dying. He was weak in his flesh. He was not weak in his faith. And you look, when it mattered... The very last moments of his life, he did not waver. And there's that theme here that we're going to see over the next few verses. Uh, We're going to turn to Genesis 48 in a moment. But there is a line of faith, is what Hebrews is tracing here, not a line of flesh. Because everyone else saw the biology. They saw that the firstborn should inherit the blessing. But it's a line of faith, not of flesh. And we're going to see that over and over and over and over again. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. We know Joseph is number 11 out of 12 sons. And like we said, none of the sons of Jacob, Israel, that name is used interchangeably once God changed it. None of them are mentioned in Hebrews 11. But he blessed the sons of Joseph. So before we get into our text in uh, Genesis 18, I want to talk about this process of uh, blessing children uh, and blessing sons. And we're going to get to that a little bit later as well. This blessing that a father would bestow upon his son is applying the promises of God to his life. Dedicating that son according to the dedication of God. Saying that I am pronouncing on you, especially the firstborn, you will get double the portion of any other son. And I I bless you with fruitfulness in numbers and in land. Over and over and over again, we see this process because the inheritance needed to go forward. The family name, the heritage needed to be continued in order for this dynasty to continue in the family, the house of Abraham, the house of Jacob. There must be a blessing bestowed on the promised child. And it's a big deal. Because sometimes we we read over uh, Esau selling his birthright as as if it's just a footnote. I mean, this is a big deal. Saying, no, I, I want no part of your, your, your will. When you die, I want nothing. Just give me a bowl of soup. It just seems ridiculous. Jacob said, I'll take it. Jacob never missed an opportunity. And it's a big deal that Esau didn't want that. Because Jacob realized what was happening. And it's through Jacob that the promises went. Not through Esau. And so what is our text this morning referring to? What is... Hebrews eleven twenty one referring to. Turn, turn with me to Genesis 48. And we're going to spend most of our time here because Hebrews 11 doesn't give us an explanation of the context. But I want you to get the context because this is so important. And I'll be honest, when I first looked at this text, how am I going to talk about the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh? Because everyone always asks, what's the significance of the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh? Hopefully you're going to get that this morning. And it took me a while, trust me. Genesis 48.3 says, I'm going to stop along the way. I want to point out important details because remember, one of the questions we started out with was, should Jacob be known for his faith? Genesis 48.3 says, and Jacob said to Joseph, so he's sick, he's, he's on his deathbed. Joseph comes to visit him with his two sons and he says, God Almighty, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. 
and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Where does Jacob start at the last moments, his last conversation with his son Joseph? Where does he start? God blessed me. I want to bless you. He recognized right away that he credits the Lord with his blessing. And the blessings that he bestows are not of himself. They are of the Lord. And the blessings were not just to Jacob. It was to the faithful generations after him. An eternal possession. By faith, there is an eternal possession by those who are tied to Jacob in faith. He goes on. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. This is very important wording here. Your sons are mine. What does that mean? We're going to get into this a a little bit later. uh, But this this is kind of an ancient Near Eastern. um, We're we're going to see some of the elements of an adoption ceremony. We don't get many of these in the Old Testament. It it doesn't come out often. Normally, it's, it's, it's a relative who will adopt children whose parents have died. But this is very significant here. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later. But he says, your two sons are going to be mine. He's saying, I'm going to bring them into the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jacob had 52 grandsons at this point. And he takes the two sons of Joseph. Joseph, the one who he thought was dead. The two names... Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh came first. The name means to forget. Joseph being in Egypt gives his sons Hebrew names saying, I'm going to forget what my brothers did to me. I'm going to forget what I went through because the Lord has prospered me. The second name, Ephraim, means twice blessed. Twice fruitful. And so you see the combination of this. Jacob is not looking at the past. Jacob is not looking, he's forgetting what his sons have done. He's forgetting his own frailty. He's looking to the twice fruitful blessing that is Ephraim. And we're going to get to those names in just a moment. So we continue down at verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? This is one of those questions. He's not asking because he doesn't know the answer. Uh, You've been to a wedding ceremony. And before the uh, pastor is going is to do the ceremony, they ask, who presents this, this woman? He knows who the father-in-law is. Or excuse me, her, who, who her father is. This is exactly what Jacob is doing here. This is the, the beginnings of a legal proceeding. Who are these? He knows their names. He mentions them earlier. It's not because he's ignorant. It's because he's doing something intentional. See what Joseph says. Who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, that's Jacob now, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has sent me your offspring also. Jacob also forgot the heartbreak he had with his son, and now he gets to revel in seeing his grandsons. And who does he credit? God. This is a man of faith at his last moments who recognizes that God brought not only his son to return him, but his grandsons. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. 
So these boys at the time are 20 years old. They're not sitting on, on his knees. But again, this is part of the adoption language of taking someone from one knee to the next, from one father to the next. And this is a, a ceremony that has a lot of significance, and we're going to see in just a moment. And he bowed himself to the face of the earth. This is an act of worship. He's not worshiping his father, but he's worshiping the God who blesses and his father who has the blessings of the Lord to be bestowed on his son. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand uh, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. You see what he's doing here. The right hand is the right hand is the hand of favor, and the left hand is the, the secondary hand. And so he's saying the firstborn goes to the right. Isaac, yeah, Jacob's right. And the uh, secondborn goes to Jacob's left. And he brought them near him. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim. And who was the younger, and he stretched out his left hand, and he put it on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers and Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Does this sound like a man who does not live and who is not dying by faith? What are the first words of blessing that come out of his mouth? The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. He's appealing to God. He's appealing to the faith of his fathers. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He is bringing the boys, the sons of Joseph, into the covenant promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Place the same blessing on them that you placed on Abraham and Isaac. This is a bold proclamation. Because these are the little grandsons of Jacob who are running around, who grew up in Egypt, probably did not know Jacob that well. But the blessings of God are for faith, not for the flesh. What is Joseph's response? Like any good father, he's proud of his sons. But what does he say? When Joseph saw his father, it laid the right hand on the head of Ephraim and it displeased him. And he took his father's hands to move it toward Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, but put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. It's interesting because Jacob The man who at the last moment of his father's life deceived him and counted on his father not knowing what he was doing. He tells Joseph, I know. Tells him twice, I know. I know what I'm doing. He shall become a people and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall be a multitude of the nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Again, the blessings of Jacob, calling on the promises of God. Jacob, every opportunity he gets, every time he speaks, he speaks in the name of the Lord. He calls upon the blessings of God. This is a man who finished well in his faith. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. I think 21 kind of sums this up and it gives us a sense of how uh, Jacob is finishing this. Then Israel said to Joseph, and again, Jacob and Israel are used interchangeably, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you 
and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Behold, I am about to die. I have no concern for me and I have no concern for you because God will be with you. So why Joseph? We get through all this. Chapter 49 is about all the other brothers who came first. Why Joseph? Because we know he's way down the line in the pecking order. But let's just rewind a moment. What do we talk about earlier when, when, when Jacob went to get a wife? Look for a wife. Rachel was the one who he was connected to. Ten brothers came first. Who was the firstborn of Rachel? Joseph, the intended wife, the promised wife, the seed of the desired wife, not the, mids, not the maidservants, not the, 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 the first wife. And we're not going to get into polygamy this morning. It's a different time, different context. I want you to see in the next chapter over, we're going to be in uh, chapter 49. So there's an appropriate place of prominence for Joseph because now he is stepping in the honored firstborn's place. He's the one who is forsaken. He gets to replace Reuben. Okay, so what happens to Reuben, the firstborn? Reuben is the one, I don't want to give it away, but if you want to read it, he sleeps with his father's concubine. Not really a wise practice when you're looking for a blessing from your father. uh, Because he was driven by his flesh, not his faith. What does Genesis 49 say, just the next chapter over, verse 3? Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Sounds great, right? But you are unstable as water. Ouch. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Jacob is known for his faith. Reuben is known for his fleshly lusts. But look what is said about Joseph. Skipping over to verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches will run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, for there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. Jacob's shepherd is Joseph's shepherd. By the God of your father, you will he- who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents." Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. The blessing on Joseph was an everlasting one. The promises of God to the son of faith was one of everlasting might and strength in the Lord, guided by his shepherd. Finishing verse 26. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. We've talked about this. What does the word holy mean? It means to be set apart. God wants his people to be holy as he is holy. God sets his people apart. God's election to say, I choose you for my inheritance. Says to Joseph, I will bless you with eternal blessings. I have set you apart from your brothers. This is why this blessing from Jacob to Joseph and his sons are so important. Because all of these older sons coming first think that they're going to inherit all of Israel's wealth and all of Israel's land. And they do get pieces of it. But they're not in the line of faith. They're in the line of flesh. 
All right, so what are the implications of all this? Why did we go through this? There's, there's a few things I want you to get from this. By faith, Jacob blessed both of his grandsons, born to an Egyptian mother, a priestess of a false god at all that. Growing up in the royal palace to one of his youngest sons, with the eye test, there is no reason they should have any inheritance in Israel. Their inheritance was not according to flesh, but according to faith. Also, God did not bless them equally. The younger, this seems to be a theme, gets the greater blessing than the older. It is not their place biologically, but it is their place according to God's providence. God says, I will make you doubly blessed over your brother. God gives in measure. Does not always give the same, does not always give equally. Jesus explained this in the parable of the talents. Does some get one talent, some get two, some get five, some get ten. It's not because they were better than one or the other. That's what we're told in Deuteronomy 7. It's because this is what God gives. And in his wisdom and in his his sovereign providence, he knows where the blessings should go and what will come of them. And again and again, God goes against conventional wisdom because for us, we want the older son. We want the, uh, the uh, prominent one. And not us saying, but uh, our, our flesh says, this is what this person deserves. God says, no, I choose who deserves what. So also there's another uh, implication here. Reuben and Simeon are the, one, the ones who, uh, who come after Dinah is molested and wipe out all of the men in this nation. They took vengeance into their own hands. They chose their wickedness, their, their, their desires for, for vengeance over the promises of the Lord. And so their inheritance was given to another. Sound familiar? The people of God continued as Israel rejected Christ. They said, no, we, we want our vengeance. We want our bloodline. We don't want your spiritual inheritance. So their inheritance was given to another. So you see this replaying itself in the New Testament. You see where we, Gentiles, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God by our bloodline. But those in the bloodline forsook it for their own, I don't know if that's even a word, but for their own fleshly desires. So there is another implication of this text. And so this, there's a tension that continues between the house of Joseph and the house of Judah. And we don't have time to get into this, and I, I wish we could. I wish, uh, I wish Genesis 49 was mentioned, because there, there's so much that, that comes out in the blessing of each one of these sons. But Judah is the house where the king will come. I'm not going to get into how that changes and all that. But Judah was a little more faithful than Israel, but not very much. Uh, but there's, there's one verse that's going to be up on the screen. It's 1 Chronicles 5.1. Uh, just one verse. I don't need you to turn there. But this is interesting because when recounting the sons of, of, of Reuben, the writer of Chronicles gives a qualifier. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, but wait, for he was the firstborn but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. There's this transition of, of preeminence from Reuben to the sons of Joseph. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. 
So this ceremony is significant because the faithful line, even if it's not the kingly line, went through Joseph, the blessing of Israel on his sons. So now we're going to get back to this topic of adoption, which I purposely left for this because this is one of the greatest implications. Because this is, might be one of my favorite results of the gospel and probably one of the most untaught in, in scripture. So we see when Jacob is lying on his deathbed, he takes the sons of Joseph and says, these are mine. I'm taking your sons with no inheritance. I'm giving them an inheritance. I'm taking your sons who were born in Egypt, who were born to foreigners under foreign gods, and I'm bringing them under the God Almighty, Al Shaddai, to be there, to be his sons. And this connects to us. Because for us, we are not the sons of flesh, but of faith. We are brought from a people who did not have an inheritance. We are lost sheep, brought from the ends of the earth, and adopted into his family. And adoption connects us to Christ's righteousness. We talked about this a few weeks ago uh, when Paul begins Romans with the gospel. I'm obligated to proclaim the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? And there's a simple definition, as there should be. But the gospel is so beautiful and so complex. One of the things, one of the results of the gospel we talked about is adoption. Being brought into God's family, given his name, given his inheritance, the inheritance that only Christ really deserves. And his righteousness is placed upon us. And our sin is placed upon him at the cross. And adoption just doesn't make us legally right before God. It brings us to the family table. It gives us the name and the, the view of our father. And it is an amazing benefit. Because like Joseph, through the line of faith, our blessings are not just land and seed, but they are an eternal inheritance. And I want us to see the spiritual blessings in uh, one of our favorite passages that we always come back to is Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 1 with me. If you want to memorize a passage for Christian encouragement, for how our theology declares who we are, it is Ephesians 1. Because blessing in the days of Jacob was seen as land, was seen as possessions, was seen as being fruitful and multiplying. But what is blessings in the days of the believer? Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, so important, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the, of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He set apart Joseph, he set apart us. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's beautiful. That our blessings are spiritual. Our blessings are eternal like they were for Joseph. We are from that house. We are not from the line of of, of Reuben. We need to stop acting like it. Stop thinking like we need to get vengeance for ourselves. Stop thinking like we need to do everything on our own. But rest in the God who blessed Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in Joseph. There's one more important note here. This word sons. 
in our modern PC culture, it, it, it causes a lot of problems for people. Because we've been, we've been trained by feminism to, to say that, all right, sun is not a good thing. We always have to have equality in everything. In that culture, only a son could get inheritance. Only a son could get land. Only a son could have their, their father's blessing. Daughters were to be provided for, for their, by their husbands and, and, were, and were given provision from their fathers as they were sent out. They really could not own land. But one of the other amazing benefits of the gospel is that all daughters become sons. Is that the inheritance that is only given to sons is not given to anyone who is in Christ. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this, not too long ago, missionaries were in Africa. And they're great PC Westerners, right? They want to inflect you know, Western politically correct language onto Africans. But in Africa, they still follow these same exact practices. Sons will be blessed by the father. This, this goes on every day. And so there's this, this panel of people who are looking at, okay, how should we word certain things? They were looking at a, a small translation of the New Testament in order to give to tribes in Africa. And there's a woman who's sitting on this, this board. And all these Westerners are, are sitting around saying, let's change the language to sons and daughters. She stands up. And says, don't you dare. Because in my village, I could never get an inheritance. In my village, I'm not a son. But in Christ, I have an inheritance. I want to be a son. Don't take that away from me. I was floored the first time I heard that. Because in the same way, all sons become a bride of Christ. This is the biblical way of shattering gender stereotypes and not in some silly and foolish way like our culture does. But before God, there is no male or female. We are sons, not biologically, but through faith. We are one spiritually. And the blessings that my brother gets, my sister gets. The inheritance that my sister gets, my brother gets. We are sons before holy and living God. We have an inheritance See, the economy of God's kingdom does not change. Only sons get inheritance. But in Christ, all are sons. So this is beautiful language that the world has no answer for. Let me get off that for a moment. So Hebrews eleven twenty one closes with the words. I didn't forget that part. Hebrews 11 closes with the words, Bowing in worship over the head of the staff. By faith, Jacob, when dying... Blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of the staff. Okay, this is talking about the end of chapter 47. So the end of, of chapter 47 in Genesis talks about uh, Jacob at the, at the frail point in his life, pleading with Joseph, do not bury me in Egypt. Send my bones to be with my father. And they do another ceremony Jacob puts his, his arm under Joseph's leg, uh, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a promise. And then Jacob bows in worship when Joseph promises to send his father's remains to the land of, of his fathers. Jacob's not worshiping his son here. He is worshiping the God who provides. He is worshiping the God who redeemed his son. He is worshiping the God who brought his people into Egypt to be with his son. He is also worshiping the God who will provide for his family forever and that he will not remain in Egypt. And through this act, Jacob is saying there is no inheritance in Egypt. There is no inheritance among the pagans. Don't look for your inheritance here. Don't get too comfortable here. 
Jacob's faith was in agreement with his worship. Our faith should always come out of our worship and should always result in worship. I love that the first words said about Jacob in Scripture are he cheats. The last word says about him in Scripture is he worships. Let the same be said about us. Cheaters, liars, murderers, to worshipers. So just a couple things to think about on your way home. Remember that in Christ, you are in the line of faith, not flesh. Remember all the blessings of the gospel. If you want something to encourage it, to be encouraged, go home and think about all the blessings of the gospel. If you read through the New Testament, what do we receive from the gospel? We receive righteousness. We receive justification. We receive sanctification. We will receive glorification. We receive a divine nature. We receive sonship. We receive a priesthood. We receive an advocate. We receive a mediator. We receive adoption into that divine family. It should be the greatest encouragement to believers. And remember that those blessings are not just temporal ones. Don't look to what the other sons of Jacob look toward. Look to the eternal blessings in Christ. And if Hebrews 11 has taught us anything, is that our home and our inheritance is to come. And the blessings that we have, the assurance of things hoped for, and the convictions of things not seen, we are not a people who walk by sight, but by faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we are your sons, that we are given an inheritance in Christ as the first of many brothers, that we stand equal before you for all eternity, equal in sin, equal in unrighteousness, equal before the foot of the cross, equal by the price paid by your son. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for your election. Thank you that you chose us when there was nothing in us for you to choose. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, in this life and in the one to come, let us be people to rejoice in all the blessings that we have here, but to not store up treasures here on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, eternal blessings that do not rust, do not fade away. Help us to be people who lives with our eyes fixed on you and our eyes fixed ahead because of who we are in Christ. In his mighty, beautiful name we pray. Amen.